0: Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 15. This is the first episode of the year recorded in my own home, And as I mentioned in previous episodes, I've been in Central America since the end of October 2019, and I just made it back to the U.S. uh, about a week before everything started to shut down. So I've been in my house in Cleveland, social distancing for the last, uh, I think it's like 18 or 19 days. Um, I hope wherever you are, you are staying healthy and practicing social distancing as well. You know, I just noticed the paradox that the last few episodes, I've been counting up the days I've been away from home, and now I'm counting up the days that I've been staying at home. And I was wondering if that's indicative of anything, well, I guess, besides my obsession with time and lists and numbers. Anyway, if you enjoy these episodes and you'd like to hear a little more from me, like getting coffee recommendations um, and also joining our growing science nerd community please subscribe to my free newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Okay, episode 15. This is a very special episode because it was picked by the podcast patrons. I started this podcast to share the stories of coffee producers throughout the world, like episode 9 with Giancarlo and then episode 13 with his wife Sophia, and there are the conversations between uh, husband and wife, the team of Mapache, who are coffee growers in El Salvador, who hired me to help them develop different fermentation protocols. And I really enjoyed those interviews because they are fifth-generation coffee growers, but they're really looking at the industry with fresh eyes, and they're just a really nice opportunity to hear from the people that are actually making your coffee. But another important goal of this podcast is to serve as a library, a resource to address your frequently asked questions. However, having a free resource like this takes a lot of preparation and is time consuming. And advertisements help offset that cost, but I find them distracting and frankly annoying. So if you've been enjoying these episodes and also find ads annoying, I would really appreciate it if you took a moment after the episode to visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash making coffee. For the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help keep this free resource available for everybody to enjoy. And one of the benefits of being a patron, a Patreon patron, is that you get to pick episode topics. So I sent my patrons a poll on what they wanted to hear about next, and the topic most people wanted to hear about was how, and this is a capital H-O-W, how fermentation helps coffee flavor. And more broadly, where does flavor come from? Maybe you had an idea of what coffee flavor was and then you started looking into specialty and tried your first single origin Ethiopia and wondered if you were crazy for thinking it tasted like jasmine flowers. Where does that jasmine note come from? If you have jasmine tea, they usually dry the tea with jasmine flowers. The tea takes on the aroma of the jasmine blossoms, but that's not how it gets into coffee. I remember... So several several years ago, when I tried a Kenyan for the first time and was baffled by how it could taste like sweet tomatoes, it took me a second. I didn't immediately go to tomatoes. I just had this like really juicy acidity in my mouth. And then my brain just sort of went to like tomato juice, tomato soup. Like how, how are there tomatoes in my coffee? Or maybe you've tried a natural or a honey process and you were able to pick up on the fruity or acidic qualities. Maybe you thought that farmers added fruit to the coffee. And while sometimes this happens, it's not the kind of flavor we're talking about today. Adding other fruits to flavor, the coffee, um, this, this is what I like to call exogenous factors. Today, we're talking about something really different. We're talking about endogenous sources of flavor, meaning they originate within the system, within the tissues and cells of coffee fruit itself. And maybe you thought these flavor differences came from the different plant varieties, or maybe the different country of origin, and that's why they tasted dif- different. And these are important factors, but that's not the whole story. So I've spent a few episodes trying to convince you that fermentation contributes to coffee's flavor, but I haven't really addressed the mechanism. When talking about coffee fermentation, many of us use symbolic phrases like, quote, unlock flavor, or, uh, quote, enhanced complexity, or more body, unquote. But how can a liquid beverage have a body? What does it mean to have a body? What is that? And we talk in analogies and metaphors, and we paint these pictures, and it's helpful to simplify a complex topic, but hearing from many of you, you're ready to get more complex. And this type of language is rather ambiguous and sounds more like marketing than science. So, I hear your frustration and I know that I'm guilty of speaking this way too. For example, my favorite analogy for how fermentation impacts coffee flavor is thinking about it as turning up the volume on on something, turning up the volume on a song. I like to think that fermentation doesn't write the song, but it can increase or decrease the bass and treble notes. In this analogy, the song comes from the static components like the plant variety, and the intensity of the notes comes from the yeast and bacteria present during the fermentation. Heather, a patron from Colorado, wrote to me asking, But how do you turn up the volume? And how is a really great question, and one that I have taken for granted. Because we know that it does because we can taste it, we can trust our senses to give us feedback. We know what grape juice tastes like, and we know what wine tastes like, and the line between them is called fermentation. Clearly, that is the mechanism responsible to produce flavor. I mean, another line you can draw from grapes to wine is called winemaking, but I promise you all of the best winemaking techniques and tanks and equipment in the world would not turn grape juice into wine if yeast and bacteria were not involved too. But the confusion with coffee is that that line is not so clear. Hardly anyone who drinks coffee has tasted a coffee fruit. It's not part of a process that we are familiar with. When I first tasted a coffee cherry, I was surprised that the fruit itself was not used for anything. A coffee cherry can taste peachy or like a honeydew melon or have notes of mango and berries. And most of this fruit is thrown away in the process and we only keep the seed. And so coffee fruit tastes nothing like the coffee beverage. So even if you had tasted a fruit, it's really hard to connect that fruit to the black beverage that we drink. So I think for the longest time, the most obvious line we could draw from the flavor that we taste in the cup back to the coffee seed, that line, the most direct one, is called roasting. And roasting has had all of this attention, and for good reason. If we take green coffee seeds and grind them and brew them, I promise you, they will not taste good. But if you roast the coffee, if you roast those green seeds and then do that same process, you will enjoy the coffee so much more. So clearly, the line we could draw from something tasting bad or just having no flavor to something tasting good and having lots of flavor is roasting. We can more easily connect the Maillard and caramelization reactions to flavor and body development. That makes a little bit more sense when you we can, in our minds, connect a dark roast to maybe a heavier body, Um, that seems to make sense. But when we talk about fermentation, it's, like I said, more ambiguous. And then you have people like me telling you about fermentation and how it produces this body and thickness and flavor and acidity, and you're not sure how that fits with what you already know about coffee. And until recently, we have accepted that flavor and body development come from roasting, So which is it? Where does flavor come from? To me, the answer to this question lies in how far back you want to go. So clearly, it comes from roasting. In roasted coffee, scientists have identified over 1,000 volatile compounds. And volatile compounds can also be called odorous compounds. They volatilize and evaporate into the air where we can smell and perceive them. And we know that smell is a really strong component to taste. And we also know that these, these compounds... They don't exist in green coffee. The coffee seed on its own doesn't have much flavor, or at least a flavor that we like. And this is where I think the coffee industry has made a grave error. Because we couldn't detect flavor in the green seed, we incorrectly assumed that how you get the seed out of the fruit doesn't matter that much, because the flavor comes from roasting. The flavor comes later. It was about the skill of the roaster, the shape of the roasting curve, the technology and the equipment, the brewing methods, that's how we thought flavor got into coffee. And for a long time, the green seeds were seen as interchangeable. And I've never argued that roasting is not responsible for flavor or that fermentation is more important than roasting. I'm just saying that the concentration of volatile compounds in roasted coffee strongly depends on the composition of the green coffee seed. You can't create the volatile compounds if the non-volatile precursors are not there. And I think most of us will agree with this. This isn't new or radical, or I'm I'm not really saying anything um, different here. The radical part is that through fermentation, we can change the composition of the seed. It is not static, that we have a very strong influence on the composition of the seeds. We can change these precursors and therefore change the volatile compounds in the roasting process. And now we're going to talk about there's two mechanisms, there's two ways that yeast and bacteria can impact the coffee flavor. So the first one is by creating these non-volatile precursors that are transformed during the roasting process and converted into the odorous molecules that we are familiar with. So examples of non-volatile precursors present in the seed are polysaccharides, lipids, proteins, free amino acids, and organic acids. The other newer way is something that is really brand new. And when I say new, it's it's really within the last two years that we're finally able to prove this. So we used to think that it was all about creating those non-volatile precursors and then still relying on roasting to transform them. We used to think that The yeast and bacteria only created these non-volatile precursors, but the research now shows that there are some odorous molecules that are formed during the fermentation and survive the roasting process, meaning they are not converted. So yeast in coffee can contribute to both volatile and non-volatile molecules. But this may still seem a little fuzzy. So where we're going with this episode next is we're taking the how question to the next level, the molecular level. Imagine you're on a coffee farm in Central America. You walk up to a coffee tree and pick a red ripe coffee cherry. The outer skin already has several species of yeast and bacteria present that have been brought by the wind or rain or birds, um, even insects. And then when you pick it, you're also contributing your own skin microbes to the cocktail. So you pick several pounds of cherries and you put them into a basket or maybe a cloth sack. Both of these are porous materials that also carry yeast and bacteria from previous harvests and potentially from the soil because most people keep their bags or baskets on the ground while they pick. So as soon as you pick the cherry, you create an opening that is a wound where it was attached to the tree. And at this moment, the microbes on the outside of the skin now have access to the sugary, rich mucilage inside. And at this moment, they can begin to feed. This is again, this is the start of the fermentation process as soon as a cherry is picked. And additionally, there may be some bird or insect damage where more juice and mucilage can seep out. And then you put them in the bag. The weight of the cherries on top of the sack is pushing down with perhaps 100 pounds of pressure on the cherries on the bottom. And this breaking some more and then further exposing more mucilage to the yeast and bacteria that are present. So microbial activity is well underway and you haven't even left the farm yet. But then you take your sack of coffee cherries back to the mill and process them. And during this transit time maybe they sit on the back of a pickup truck heating up under the midday sun and accelerating the microbial activity. And then when you get to the mill, maybe you float them with recycled water. And this is really good for the environment to recycle your water and to be able to uh, use your resources like this, but you're basically painting them in a bath of additional microbes that have been collecting and um, multiplying in that water or in the reservoir or in the tanks, in any, any place like that. And then you run them through a pulper to remove the outer skin and expose the mucilage, and all of the equipment and the tank All of these pieces have their own yeast and bacteria, their own, you know, microbiome that they are contributing to the cocktail. So now we're accelerating the process even more because you're exposing all of the mucilage by pulping the coffee. And whereas before you only had these, you know, little um, wounds, little openings, now you've got the entire skin off and the whole seed is exposed. And this is not unique to washed or wet processed coffees. This uh, process is similar in dry processed or natural coffees. It just happens a lot more slowly. You might already know that yeast consume sugar to make their main byproducts. So call them yeast burps of carbon dioxide and basically poops out alcohol. So these two main products, carbon dioxide and alcohol, neither of which are particularly flavorful by themselves. These are the primary metabolites, meaning it will make these byproducts first. And I think this is where we can get stuck, where we're like, yeah, I know what yeast does. It makes bread rise. It does all these other um, things that you're familiar with, but you don't understand how that actually contributes to flavor. And that's because we're really used to talking about the primary metabolism, and now we're getting into the secondary metabolism. This is a whole world of secondary metabolites that yeast can make that are responsible for flavor. Okay. Okay buckle up for some biochemistry. Let's Go back to our fermentation tank. So the exposed coffee pulp doesn't just contain the sugar sucrose. It also contains pectin and peptides. Pectin you're probably familiar with as that gelatinous material, and peptides are just strings of amino acids. And as many of you know, amino acids are important for the Mayard reaction during roasting. So we humans, we like sucrose but the yeast preferred sugar source is glucose. So a molecule of sucrose is a glucose and a fructose combined. Yeast also promotes the breakdown of pectin through the production of hydrolytic enzymes, which release simple sugars as an additional source for yeast metabolism. So simple sugars are glucose and fructose, and because sucrose is the combination, that's not considered a simple sugar because it's it's a a two-unit sugar. And This means that the yeast is greedy, and it can use a glucose that's trapped in the pectin too. So the yeast can use both the sucrose and the pectin as sources of glucose for energy production. And this was the main function of traditional fermentation, to remove the pectin layer, to clean the seed and set it out to dry. So historically, the industry has only used the fermentation to break down the pectin. For me, this is like having a Formula One car and only driving it to get groceries. Like, the obvious function of the fermentation step is, is a free way to remove the pectin. So yes, sure, you can do that. But what a missed opportunity. Like, there's so much more interesting uh, processes that can happen than just removing the mucilage. So the less obvious function is to take advantage of the yeast and bacteria that are looking for energy. And this is the crux of it for me. So fermentation is about more than removing the mucilage. It's this metabolic activity. The the yeast objective is to create adenosine triphosphate, ATP, which is the energy molecule that is present in all living tissues. This is a cell's currency. ATP keeps the whole engine running. Sucrose and pectin are too large to enter the yeast cell. So the yeast releases enzymes to break the sucrose bonds, or the pectin, to release the glucose. Sucrose has 12 carbons, and glucose has 6 carbons, so now it can enter the yeast cell. Inside the cell, a 10-enzyme reaction sequence called glycolysis turns one molecule of glucose into two molecules of pyruvate and generates two ATP, or two energy units. One pyruvate molecule can interact with an enzyme called pyruvate decarboxylase where it loses a carbon dioxide molecule, so we're releasing some gas, to become acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde has the aroma of oxidized apples. It can also interact with an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase to become ethanol. Then the ethanol and the acetaldehyde can combine to form acetic acid. So depending on the species of microbes, acetic acid can be a direct or an indirect product. For example, um, for yeast it's often an indirect product, but for acetic acid bacteria, as their name indicates, it's a primary metabolite. So that's just to say both yeast and bacteria can make acetic acid just in different concentrations and with different levels of efficiency. And acetic acid in low levels can be perceived as pleasantly fruity and can really contribute something very positive to a coffee, but at high levels, it it tips towards rotting fruit And this is also what is responsible for the over-fermentation defect, because acetic acid is vinegar. And I've mentioned in episode four in detail how inaccurate this term of over-fermentation is, so I won't go into it again here, but I hope that we can all try together to start to phase it out, because it's really an illogical term in terms of explaining what's happening at the microbiological level and then really the flavor descriptors in coffee. So sorry my little waving my little flag of I'm hoping we, I'm hoping we can stop using that term. This also explains why a coffee that has an acetic acid defect or rot is also usually described as boozy. You will usually find these two descriptors together. It's hard to have, you know, a boozy, a coffee that doesn't also have an element of rot or a coffee that has an element of rot that isn't also boozy. And that's just the interaction of the ethanol and the acetaldehyde. But Lucia, you're asking yourself, because you're doing the math at home, that's only one pyruvate molecule and we release two. I'm so glad you asked. The other pyruvate molecule is small enough to enter the mitochondria. And you've probably heard of mitochondria as energy factories. Inside the mitochondria. A 3 carbon pyruvate molecule interacts with coenzyme A. And in this process, electrons are transferred to NAD+ to produce NADH. One pyruvate loses one carbon atom to carbon dioxide gas. So more more bubbles are expelled, creating two molecules of acetyl CoA, which can go into the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle that you learned about in high school biology. In this cycle, the acetyl group is oxidized to carbon dioxide. Again, more gas production as well as water, and the energy released is captured in the form of 11 ATP, so 11 more energy units. So essentially what's going on is we are losing carbons, and if you're trying to balance an equation or follow a chemical reaction, you must keep track of your carbon molecules because those are the easiest to keep track of. So don't focus on your oxygens yet or your hydrogens, especially your hydrogens. That'll really mess you up. So we started With a 12-carbon sucrose molecule that broke down into a 6-carbon fructose and a 6-carbon glucose, we're ignoring the fructose for now, Well, following that glucose that breaks down into two smaller 3-carbon pyruvate molecules, each 3-carbon pyruvate then donates one carbon, an acetyl group, to create the molecule acetyl-CoA, and then that loses another carbon to produce carbon dioxide. And during these many breakdowns, we're transferring electrons and we're generating ATP. We're generating energy that powers other reactions further down the chain. So one acetyl-CoA can go towards alcohol production, and another acetyl-CoA can react with other enzymes to create ketones like acetone, which we all know is nail polish remover. Um, Not an aroma anyone looks forward to, but definitely something that you can produce in coffee. Another acetyl CoA can react with alcohol to create esters. And esters are kind of the holy grail of fermentation. They're very odorous compounds. For example, ethyl acetate is the aroma of grapes. Isoamyl acetate smells like banana. Ethyl hexanoate smells like pears. Ethyl octanoate, like pineapple, or the coveted apricot, pentyl butyrate. Another way to form an ester is through the combination of amino acids with alcohol, which is also yeast derived. So that's how yeast are responsible for apricot notes in your coffee, how they can take a glucose molecule that's found in the mucilage, in the pectin itself, and turn it into these really interesting uh, fruity flavors. So it's not totally unfounded when you pick up a coffee bag and you see descriptors like raspberries or rose or lemongrass or mint these are all compounds that have been identified by scientists both the compound and the microbe that can produce it another important point to note is that many of these esters are not found in the plants they can only be created through a microbial metabolic activity like fermentation they are not part of the genetic makeup of the plant and they are not specific to a certain country or a coffee growing region These are microbial-derived metabolites, and these microbes can travel. So that's how we can get some of these similar flavors uh, in different parts of the world. But before we move on from flavor, um, I want to address the rest of Heather's question, because she also asked, how can you add body and thickness using a yeast fermentation process? So the esters that we talked about, esters or ketones um, or or terpenes, they are really about flavor and they are not responsible for body or for thickness is, is really what we're talking about like the viscosity um, but yeast do also produce polysaccharides which are molecules that impact the mouthfeel by increasing the perceived viscosity so the polysaccharides can combine and become larger and larger molecules meaning more carbons are bound together and they create the sensation of weight in your mouth so you'll notice a correlation between uh, natural processed coffees which has much more yeast contact. So a natural process can be drying for about, you know, 20 days. And during those 20 days, there is still some yeast activity creating these polysaccharides, creating this heavier body uh, than you would with a wash process that may be in contact with yeast for, you know, maybe a 24-hour fermentation or something like that. Much, much shorter contact time. So I hope that helps. Um, I hope you can see that It's really about sugar, it's about yeast, it's about getting energy, it's about how they extract that ATP, and it's just a lucky accident that we happen to like what yeast poop and yeast farts are. They happen to be very flavorful to us, but they're just trying to get this energy. So I know this was a lot, but another perk of joining the podcast Patreon is that you get a copy of the scientific paper I used for this episode. This paper has a list where you can see um, the full list of the different species of yeast and bacteria and the metabolites that they make. So today I only talked about a handful, but the paper has 144 different odorous compounds that they have identified, and you'll also find a drawing that might help all of this crystallize. So there's a lot more that we could talk about here, but I think for today we're just going to leave it with that main metabolism, and I think in the future we could talk about now, how do you shift these concentrations? Like, how do you make sure that you get a fermentation that produces a lot more pineapple than acetone? Uh, how do you have a healthy fermentation? All of these things, like, these are all dials that we can play with. But what I really wanted to get across was how this happens in the first place and just be really confident with these pathways, So one of the benefits of being a Patreon member is that you get access to some of this information in advance of the episode. So I sent this uh, 13-page review, the scientific paper that is where I got most of this kind of synthesis from, uh, sent it out in advance to my patrons, and they were able to look at it and submit questions. So right now we're going to hear from Brett, who got the paper in advance, was able to read it, and here is his question. Hi, Lucia. My name is Brett, and I'm a barista down here in Tucson, Arizona. My question is, how do we begin to discuss flavor in a more accurate, but also a more approachable way? The goal for me is to be honest with my customers about flavor and its origins, but they're also not likely to hang around for a long academic lecture. I'd love to hear your thoughts about where you think we're heading in terms of how we speak to customers about flavor in an efficient and effective way thanks so much. Brett brings up an interesting paradox. The paradox is how do we talk about a complex topic in an efficient way? He's absolutely right. Um, you guys just listened to this, you know, very long, very detailed explanation about flavor. And again, this is a very simplified version of what's going on. So who's going to sit through a lecture like this? Um, Maybe after listening to this episode, you guys have some ideas about how to talk about flavor more efficiently. Um, clearly I don't because I gave you this entire episode. Um, but I do think that one place to start is <laughs> one place to start is to stop talking about terroir. I'm planning a future episode where I'll do a, a deeper dive into this topic, and I won't say too much about it now. But for the moment, let's just press pause on that until I can give you some. Um, some background and a little bit more information on what that term means and and what it can signify. So one thing that I do recommend is try to pivot a little bit. Like as a barista, if you're trying to communicate what is interesting about the coffee, I think one thing you can do is first mention who grew it. Connect it to the person. Say that it was Ana from Finca Esperanza in Guatemala. Or talk about the farm and that this particular farm is bird-friendly certified. You know, make it specific to what you know about that coffee. And another point, you know, coffee processing is obviously what I find most interesting, but I wouldn't recommend that as the first place to start. Like, for example, if you're describing a coffee as a 48-hour lactic process, submerged fermentation, dried on raised beds in the shade for 17 days, like, that's obviously very descriptive but probably means very little to the average coffee drinker. Like, how can a 48-hour fermentation be impressive when you probably don't even know that coffee is fermented? So, if you're a busy barista serving coffee to many customers that are maybe just getting into specialty coffee, try to focus on the farmer. Tell them the name of the person who made the coffee that they're drinking. Connect it to a face across the world. I think that's more powerful than trying to parse out if the notes of orange come from a microbial source or from the genetic variety of the coffee plant. And as a barista, you may not know the farmer, so ask your green buyer. And if they don't know, ask the importer. And then if they don't know, well, is that really specialty coffee? You know, it's my observation that specialty is most strongly connected to a score. And that traceability is important and we're talking about it more, but it's really a secondary element. And how can we call a product specialty? How can we hold it up to the highest standards of the industry if we aren't tracking where it came from, including information like the name of the person responsible for growing it, the name of the person who sits at the start of this long value chain? How can it be specialty and also anonymous? Brett, thanks so much for your question. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope this sparked a lot of questions for you about flavor and how we talk about it and how we can do a better job of understanding for ourselves where it comes from. And this really important question of, well, then how do we communicate that? So I'm looking forward to seeing what this sparks in you guys. Thanks again for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. Catch you next time.